All right, so we're in the midst of a three-week series, and we're refreshing ourselves on our values. So we've got three values. We keep it simple here at Bethel. Three values. Ready? What are they? Gospel, community, and mission. Okay, so we usually go over this at least, you know, roughly on an annual basis, something like that, kind of a series that goes explicitly through our values. And so this time, we're looking at each of them in relation to prayer. So last week, the gospel and prayer. This week, community and prayer. Next week, mission and prayer. So last week, it was prayer and justification. This week, prayer and sanctification. Next week, prayer and mission. Okay? So I mentioned this last week, but we view our values as both actual and aspirational. Okay? So actual in the sense that we do treasure Jesus. We do treasure the gospel here. We do love each other here. Okay? We love the body of Christ. We want to love our, our family, spiritual family here. We love the lost. We want to reach out and be salt and light and love our city, our neighbors. But we also recognize that we all have room to grow in every area, right? So this is not as true of Bethel as it should be. We need to grow. So how do these aspirations become actual, become realized? Well, one key way is through prayer, right? So <clears throat> we considered last week how easy, when you're talking about prayer, how easy cynicism can creep in and kind of poison our prayers. And I quoted from this book by Paul Miller, A Praying Life. So if you weren't here last week, you can find that message on the website um, or the podcast or whatever. So I want to share another story, a story from, or quote again this book, but it's a story from the beginning of the book, and just recommend this book to you again, A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World by Paul Miller. Okay, so this is in chapter one right off the bat, and the chapter is called, What Good Does It Do? And he writes this, I was camping for the weekend in the endless mountains of Pennsylvania with five of our six kids. My wife Jill was home with our eight-year-old daughter Kim. After a disastrous camping experience the summer before, Jill was happy to stay home. She, sa she said she was giving up camping for Lent. I was walking down from our campsite to our Dodge Caravan when I noticed our 14-year-old daughter Ashley standing in front of the van, tense and upset. When I asked her what was wrong, she said, I lost my contact lens. It's gone. I looked down with her at the forest floor covered with leaves and twigs. There were a million little crevices for the lens to fall into and disappear. I said, Ashley, don't move. Let's pray. But before I could pray, she burst into tears. What good does it do? I've prayed for Kim to speak, and she isn't speaking. Kim struggles with autism and developmental delay. Because of her weak, fine motor skills and problems with motor planning, she is also mute. One day after five years of speech therapy, Kim crawled out of the speech therapist's office crying from frustration. Jill said, no more, and we stopped speech therapy. Prayer was no mere formality for Ashley, the daughter with the contact lens. She had taken God at his word and asked that he would let Kim speak, but nothing happened. Kim's muteness was testimony 
to a silent God. Prayer, it seemed, doesn't work. Few of us have Ashley's courage to articulate the quiet cynicism or spiritual weariness that develops in us when heartfelt prayer goes unanswered. We keep our doubts hidden, even from ourselves, because we don't want to sound like bad Christians. No reason to add shame to our cynicism. So our hearts shut down. So do, do your prayers make a difference? Do your prayers make a difference in the lives of other people? If you're a parent, do they make a difference in the life of your child? For all of us, do they make a difference in the lives of our brothers and sisters? What do your prayer patterns say that you believe the answers to those questions are? I wonder, I wasn't anticipating this, you know, before last week, um, but I wonder if maybe one of the main things God wants to do in your life, in our lives, in the midst of this series, is to melt the ice of cynicism that has built up on our souls in regard to what God wants to do and can do and will do in and through us. So later in that chapter, he does a little thought experiment. It's called A Visit to a Prayer Therapist. (laughs) So he says, let's imagine that you see a prayer therapist to get your prayer life straightened out. The therapist says, let's begin by looking at your relationship with your Heavenly Father. God said, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. 2 Corinthians 6. What does it mean that you are a son or daughter of God? You reply that it means you have complete access to your Heavenly Father through Jesus. You have true intimacy, based not on how good you are, but on the goodness of Jesus. Not only that, Jesus is your brother. You are a fellow heir with him. The therapist smiles and says, that's right. You've done a wonderful job of describing the doctrine of sonship. Now, tell me what it's like for you to be with your father. What is it like to talk with him? You cautiously tell the therapist how difficult it is to be in your father's presence even for a couple of minutes. Your mind wanders. You aren't sure what to say. You wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? Then you feel guilty for your doubts and just give up. Your therapist tells you what you already suspect. Your relationship with your heavenly father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship, but you don't. Theoretically, it is close. Practically, it is distant. You need help. So this book will help, and hopefully this series will help, because God wants to help. (laughs) He wants to draw near. He wants to draw you near. And he does want to melt the ice of cynicism. So what do we do with all the unanswered prayer? Well, we're not going to address that at length this morning, but just since I kicked it up, these thoughts from C.S. Lewis may help. It's from a little essay entitled The Efficacy of Prayer. So, 
Now, even if all the things that people prayed for happened, which they do not, this would not prove what Christians mean by the efficacy, the effectiveness of prayer. For prayer is a request. The essence of request, as distinct from compulsion, is that it may or may not be granted. And if an infinitely wise being listens to the requests of finite and foolish creatures, of course he will sometimes grant and sometimes refuse them. Invariable success, okay, meaning like constant or never-changing success, like if every single one of our prayers were answered. Invariable success in prayer would not prove the Christian doctrine at all. It would prove something more like magic, a power in certain human beings to control or compel the course of nature. If every single one of our prayers were answered, that would be, that would be the scenario. There are no doubt passages in the New Testament which may seem at first sight to promise an invariable granting of our prayers. You know, there's those texts that we say, how do we understand this? Jesus said, you know, if you ask this in my name, it will be granted. And you're like, I did that. I thought that I did that. And I wasn't answered. So it seems like it's this blank check. How do I do? There are no doubt passages in the New Testament which may seem at first sight to promise an invariable granting of our prayers. But that cannot be what they really mean. We'd have to look at them individually to see in context what they mean. For in the very heart of the story, this is, I think, a really helpful point we meet a glaring instance to the contrary. In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. After that, the idea that prayer is recommended to us as a sort of infallible gimmick may be dismissed. And you can also think, why did God not answer that prayer? Or did he answer it as no? For really, really good eternal purposes. All right. So what we're going to do this morning is look at the two New Testament letters to the church in Thessalonica. Okay? And see what those letters have to teach us about prayer and our growth as a community of faith. Okay? So community and prayer from the books 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Okay? We're going to glean three main lessons, our three points, the first three points on the outline. And then the fourth point, the last point, I'll offer one kind of practical how-to um, for how we pray for our church family, pray for community. All right, so point number one, <clears throat> there is an uh, outline on the live stream page if you're using that, or you can just follow along on the screens here. So, first point, we ought to thank God for His grace in His people. So, if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you're familiar with uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul, this is a pattern with him. And it is not a perfunctory pattern. He didn't just kind of like, oh, I'm supposed to start the letters this way, you know, out of duty and little care, or this like indifferent obligation, like I'm just supposed to do this. No, this was really meaningful. Okay, you can find this pattern in other letters. Look at the beginning of Philippians or whatever. But we're going to stay home here as much as possible in First and Second Thessalonians. So go ahead and turn there. 
to 1 Thessalonians 1. And we're going to look at verses 2 to 10 first. So the longer sections, here, I'll just give you a heads up here. The longer sections won't be on the screen, so you want to turn to those. But the shorter ones will be on the screen. Um, that'll probably help you focus and um, not kind of lose track while you're trying to flip and find the next passage. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10. Go ahead and turn there and follow along as I read. Let's see how Paul gives thanks to God for his grace in his people. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us <clears throat> and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything, like their reputation spread even further. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul thanks God for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Why does he do that? Because God's the one that produced it. God's the one that produces those characteristics, those virtues in the life of a believer. So Paul is certain that these folks, these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, are God's chosen people. Because the gospel wasn't just words, words, words to them. It came to them in power. It changed them from the inside out. It came to them in the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit was obvious and with full conviction. And because the Thessalonian believers learned from Paul, they followed him. They imitated him. It changed their lives. And since Paul was clearly following Christ... For them to follow Paul meant that they were following Christ, who is the example, the pioneer of our faith. So if they were imitating Paul, who was an example, what would happen to them? What would they become? An example. And that's exactly what happened. You became imitators, verse 6, so that you became an example, verse 7. You see that? So that's the progression. So if, if you heed Paul's exhortation, follow me as I follow Christ, you'll actually eventually be able to say the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. So Paul's giving thanks to God for what he sees, the evidences of grace in these Thessalonian believers. And can I just say, as one of the shepherds, one of the elders of Bethel, we give thanks 
when we hear of, we see the faith and hope and love of this church family in action. Like I could multiply examples, a few that come to mind when somebody is sick or there's a family member in the hospital or when a loved one or one of our members passes away, this church responds. And we give thanks. Evidence of God's grace. Meal, shoveling snow, meeting needs. The way, another example, the way you love on and take care of our missions partners is exemplary. So, like, even this weekend, in responding quickly to take care of A and B as they come in and their family, you know, last-minute schedule changes, and everybody's like, great, what can we do? You know, Shannon with the house, Dave Grubb and Glenn Hoffheiser getting their vehicle, driving up into who knows where, middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, to get this van so that when they come, they can just, here's the van, Here's, you know, people giving groceries and signing up and Gail sending, you know, it's filled like that. Gift cards, all this stuff. It's beautiful. It's also encouraging to hear of some of you, like some really cool opportunities to reach out to neighbors and people at work sharing the, the truth and love of Christ. And again, if you're one of those people like Tyler said, write that thing out because it encourages other people to hear those stories. Okay? So write it out. I know that's hard. I know that's, you know, one more thing. Like, who wants to take another survey? I mean, do you ever just get another one of those surveys and you're like, oh, delete. That's much better. Like, this isn't a survey, but it's really encouraging to share how God's at work, how he opens doors because that stirs up other people to look for the same kind of opportunities. Or I love hearing how Marsha Ackeson continues to reach out. It's unfortunate that we have an empty front row here for however many months this is. 11 months, 9 months, 10 months. We miss our Mary Campbell friends. Marsha Ackeson writing to them, calling in. She can't talk to them. You know, HIPAA laws and all this stuff, but like social worker. How are they doing? Please let them know that we miss them and we love them. Debbie Huss, hearing, how, hearing from different angles how she's reaching out in quiet and creative and consistent ways. I didn't tell her I was going to say this, or Marsha um, probably wouldn't want me to, but I, I could multiply these examples. So I thank God, Bethel, when I remember, when I hear of your faith, hope, and love, and when you see evidence of God's grace in your brothers and sisters, Give thanks to God for that. Paul certainly did here in 1 Thessalonians. He does the same in 2 Thessalonians. So these are up on the screen. Two places. Look at this. 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We ought. That's like an obligation word. It's really interesting. Like it is the right fitting and even, it's almost like a, a debt of gratitude that Paul's paying here. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Or if you go down to 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says again, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
So Paul's just liberal about giving thanks. He sees evidences of grace, and he is thanking God for what God is doing. Why does Paul do this? It's obvious in the text. Because your faith is growing abundantly, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, or because God chose you, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He wants God to get the glory. Who's responsible for this grace and this growth? It's God. But stop and think, why... So, of course, in his private devotions or even with other, you know, people that helped him, you know, bring the gospel to Thessalonica, you know, he could thank God for these things. But why does he write it to the Thessalonians? Why does he let them know? Why does he include these Thanksgiving prayers in his letters? Is it so that they'll think he's really spiritual? Is it in order to kind of like manipulate them to be impressed and to praise and follow him like you know, I, th- I thank God for you. I pray for you so much. And you, you need to know that. You know, is this like a carryover from his, his days as a Pharisee? You know, standing there and making these long prayers so that everybody thinks you're so spiritual? And No. It's intended, don't you think, to be an encouragement to them. So God gets the glory, but they get the encouragement. They're reassured by their spiritual father that they're the real deal. Like, Isn't it encouraging when somebody sees growth in you and tells you? So he's telling them, even though he's telling God, because God gets the glory, but they get the encouragement. So their faith is genuine, and it's an affirmation to them. It's affirming to them of who they are, of whose they are. I mean, isn't this what a godly father or mother does with their child? If you see God working in your child, you long for your child to know Jesus and trust him and follow him. And if you see evidences of grace in their life, you point that out. You want them to be encouraged. It's spiritual affirmation and encouragement and commendation. So we should do this every chance we get. Is there too much encouragement filling your home? Not mine, and that's my fault. Is there too much encouragement filling your community group? Probably not. Our church, is there too much? Are we suffering from too much encouragement? I don't think so. And I'm not talking about flattery, okay? No. Encouragement. Giving thanks to God and letting other people know that we see evidences of his work in their lives. So let's give thanks to God for one another and let others know when we see evidences of God's grace in them. God gets the glory. They're going to get the encouragement. It's a win-win. God set it up that way. You guys tracking with me? Yes? Okay. So Paul is thanking God for the Thessalonians, telling them that he's doing so. This is not a sterile duty for him. He loves these people. Okay, he loves to see God save and sanctify people to transform them slowly but surely into the image of Jesus. He's pouring his life out for this. So when he sees it happen in the lives of others, it gets him really jazzed up, and he can't help but thank God. So as you read through these two letters, and I would encourage you, if you didn't already, take the time to just read both these letters, one sitting, start to finish. I don't think you'll regret it. 
And just notice the prayer dynamic and notice the love of Paul for these people. And also notice that sanctification is a key theme in these books. So how are God's people? Remember, we're talking about community like, and prayer. We're talking about sanctification, growth of the body and prayer. How are God's people sanctified, made holy, made more like Jesus? Second point, it's an equation. I'm not trying to, you know, reduce it to a, a stupid or simple equation, but this is helpful to see these components, these variables put together in the books. The word plus prayer plus love equals sanctification, leads to sanctification. Okay, so let's see that here in the books. Let me first just point out a few examples of the centrality of the word. That's the first part of the equation to sanctify God's people. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers at work in you to change you, to sanctify you. Then, this one's not up there, so turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 5. And he writes this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. That's how, right? Those are words. Teaching, instruction just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like those who don't know God. Okay? So you see how the instruction, the word, is so key to sanctification. So word plus Prayer, and we're going to look at that under point number three, plus love equals sanctification. So let's look at the love. It really stands out in these letters. Just some beautiful illustrations. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 8. Did I? Yep, there we go. Listen to how Paul loved these people, how he related to them. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Or 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 to 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy. So Mother-like love, father-like love. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians 2.17. And again, just look at the heart of Paul, just wide open to these folks, loving them. And he's an example to them, which means this is how they ought to love one another. He's an example to us of how we ought to love. So 1 Thessalonians 2.17, but since we were torn away from you, we didn't just leave out of sight, out of mind. We were torn away from you for a short time, brothers, in person, but not in heart. Couldn't tear our hearts away from you. 
we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, wanted to come to you. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And then he goes on. He says, when we could bear it no longer. Like I had to find out how you're doing. Verse 5 again. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I, I sent Timothy to learn about your faith. And when he heard that they were doing well, that they were stable, Verse 7, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It kills us if you're, if you're destabilized and shaky. Now we really live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. You see how Paul loved these people? Like, what if that characterized the way that we love one another? His heart is just wrapped up with these people. So the word is essential. Prayer is essential. We'll look at that in a minute. Love is essential to sanctify, to purify, to grow and mature the church, the body of Christ. So if we're going to be a church family that grows in grace, that grows in gospel-shaped, grace-shaped community, we are going to need to pray for it. We're going to need the Word. We're going to need love. But we are going to need to pray for it. We need all three of those components. I mean, if we only pray and we don't rely on the Word, we kind of minimize preaching and teaching and encouragement, and exhortation, reminder, counsel, then it's going, to be try, it's going to be like trying to, you know, make a fire with a lighter, the lighter of prayer, without the wood of the Word. Or if we have lots of preaching and teaching and exhortation and encouragement and counsel without prayer, then it's going to be like piling a bunch of wood with no, no lighter. And if we have lots of preaching and teaching and exhortation and encouragement and counsel and lots of prayer, but no love, then it's like a fire that's burning like 500 yards away. It's burning, but it's not getting close to anybody, close enough to anybody to actually warm their souls. So word plus prayer plus love equals sanctification. We looked at word and love under point number two. Now let's look at how prayer is vital to sanctification in point number three. Prayer is like love on its knees, and prayer is shaped by and informed by the Word. So these are intertwined, these three components, these three factors. So third, prayer for sanctification and glory. Look first at First um, Thessalonians 3.11. Maybe we have that one up here. Look at all these prayers in these two short books. Now may our God and Father himself... And our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. Again, because they love him so much, they want to be with him. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So maybe just leave that slide up there because... Actually, all word plus prayer plus love is in this one. Um, 
But do you see how vital prayer is to our growth in grace, to our sanctification? It's actually really obvious if you go backwards, if you kind of work through this passage from the bottom up. So hearts established in holiness at the return of Christ, that happens as we grow in holiness throughout this life. How does that happen? Well, that happens as we increase and abound in love. Well, how do we increase and abound in love? Well, as the Lord answers the prayers of the saints. So we've got to pray if sanctification is going to happen, if this prayer is going to be answered. So if we're going to be ready to meet Jesus. So, which is why Paul prays again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So it's obvious that sanctification, being made holy, becoming more like Jesus, is Paul's priority for the community of faith in Thessalonica. And it's God's priority for us too here at Bethel in Wilmington. So how are we sanctified? It happens by God's grace, through faith, in Jesus. So by God's grace, we've got to pray, right? We've got to ask for it because it's by His grace. It's through faith. Well, how often do you resonate with the man who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We even need to ask We need to pray so that our faith wouldn't fail, so that our faith would be stronger, so that it would grow. So by grace, through faith, in Jesus. So we pray. We pray all of our prayers in his name and through him, right? I mean, what other right do we have to come to God with confidence? Only because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He has made the way. He has paid for our sins. So we can come with confidence. Otherwise, the throne of God would be a throne of judgment. But because of Jesus, in his name, we come with confidence. Because all of our sins, if we're trusting in him as our Savior, all of our sins are paid for. They're covered, forgiven. We're in Christ. So if Jesus can come before the Father with confidence, so can we because we come in him, in his name. So it is really clear in the Thessalonian correspondence that God wants us to pray for our brothers and sisters that we all might be sanctified. Prayer is vital. It is necessary to our growth in grace. A couple more examples here. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Do you ever have resolves for good, like ideas of how you ought to change? And then they just kind of fall flat. I mean, I think we all do, right? So how does that resolve for good, the rubber of that resolve, hit the road of life and actually happen? Help! Help me live this out. I, I'm, I come in late, you know, on Sunday mornings. Help me, Lord, to get in here <laughs> so that I am like all here and ready. There's lots of other resolves for good and works of faith that we need 
grace for, so we need to pray. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it happens by prayer. And all so that the name of Jesus may be glorified as he answers those prayers. Okay? Sanctification and glory. Prayer is absolutely vital. So, what does all this mean for us? It means that sanctification is a community project. We've got to help each other grow in grace and persevere to the end. So do you see how if cynicism like creeps in and is ice on our soul, we're not going to be for one another what we are called to be. We're not going to be praying, asking and seeking and knocking, and the whole body's going to suffer. So we need to pray for the sake of the good and the growth of the body and the glory of Jesus. So prayer is vital to this. Your prayers, my prayers are vital to this church family growing and each of us finishing, like crossing the finish line in faith. So we are to bear one another's burdens and bear them with our brothers and sisters, but also carry them to Jesus on behalf of our brothers and sisters. So how do we implement this? Just practically speaking, last point. Some of you could probably teach the how better than me. If you have helpful practices, you know, share them with your community group. Lots of ways we can make this practical, but let me just mention a few under the heading of point number four, pray the Bible in concentric circles. So pray the Bible, what I mean. What do I mean by that? So Paul is not only informing the Thessalonians that he was praying for them. I thank God for this and this. I'm praying this and this. You realize that indirectly, he's also teaching them how to pray. He's teaching them what to pray for. Let the Bible inform and shape your prayers. So there's actually a link on the live stream page with the references of Paul's prayers under the, the title of Pray the Prayers of Paul. So if you wonder, you know, what are the prayers of Paul in the Bible? They're all listed right there. Okay? So what you could do is you could print that little list off and make note cards and take one a week and pray it for everybody in your life on your prayer list, you know? One of the most helpful exercises I ever did was years ago, memorize each of the prayers of Paul so that I'm actually praying God's priorities for other people. Because I don't know about you, but if I don't have the Bible, I just end up like saying these vague general, you know, please be with so-and-so and please be with so-and-so. And like, there, there's more substance than that. And the Bible can teach us how to pray. So I encourage you to just download that and make some note cards and allow the Bible to shape and inform how you pray for one another. So pray the Bible in concentric circles. What do I mean by that? Well, it's simple. You can't pray for everyone. I can't pray for everyone, right? So how do you determine who you pray for? Well, if you think of it like concentric circles, like a bullseye or a dartboard or whatever, work your way from the inside out. So your own heart, your family, your community group, 
maybe your, the ministry you're involved in, your Bible study or your you know, student ministry or whatever, your neighbors, your coworkers. You can use the directory as a prayer list like we've mentioned in previous weeks. So none of us can pray for everyone. You can't pray for everyone even that's on your list every day. But you can pray for some. And you might want to have a prayer list, you know, for each day so that you focus on different people on different days. Here's the point. Proximity implies accountability. So who does God, who has God put close to you? Focus on those people. And speaking of concentric circles, perhaps you'll remember this along with those concentric circles. Just as you work your way from the inside out as far as who to pray for, so also our prayers have a ripple effect. Okay, our, our prayers are like spiritual pebbles tossed into the pond of God's work in the world. So who knows the impact of your prayers? Let's just say, get behind me, Satan, when it comes to the cynicism that would completely just derail our prayers. Let's trust God. He said, ask, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So who knows the impact of your prayers, even if you don't see it. And I'm just, just talking about like two days from now or two weeks, but two and three years down the road and maybe two and three generations down the road. So did John Newton, you know, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, know that his prayers for William Wilberforce, who came to him for advice as to whether or not he should enter the ministry and leave the parliament? Newton said, no, you should stay in parliament. And Newton fought for the abolition of the slave trade. So think of the ripple effect of Newton's prayers for Wilberforce. Did he know that? No, he didn't know what he was. He was faithful. And we know who William Wilberforce is. Or William Cooper, who lived with Newton, who really struggled with depression and, and suicide, and yet wrote some of the most powerful poems and some hymns that we still sing today. He didn't know the impact of his prayers for William Cooper generations down the road, but God did. Did Monica know that her prayers for her son Augustine would mean that we would have the confessions as a life-changing classic 1,600 years later. Mothers who are the real prayer warriors, you know, for wandering children. So I know that part of the reason under God that I haven't walked away from Jesus or blown up my life is owing to the prayers of my dear mama. God only knows what I owe the faithful prayers of that dear woman. So who, brothers and sisters, Bethel family, who needs your prayers? By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, let's pray that we will all grow by grace through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. We're going to sing.
Dear Father, I pray that you would convince us and assure us that our prayers matter. That you hear all of our prayers. That you are willing and able to answer. And that you are answering according to your infinite wisdom. Would you please melt the ice of cynicism in our hearts and replace replace it with a warm spirit wrought confidence persevering confidence in your goodness and your willingness to work for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name.